May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. I am joined this week by my friend and partner, David Pfeffer, who is the chair of our construction group. How you doing, David? I'm doing well. Thanks, Rich. Thank you for being here. We're getting together in the aftermath of this terrible tragedy in Surfside, Florida, a few weeks ago involving a building collapse and a terrible loss of life. And we're not going to dwell on the specifics of that incident, which I think has been well covered elsewhere. But for good or for bad, things like that pique our curiosity as a legal matter. And so I wanted to have David come on and talk about this a little bit. David, this is not the first sudden, unexpected building collapse in the United States. Is that fair to say? That is true, but Rich, I will say that total non-intentional collapses are extremely rare in this country. We have a great system of construction protocols and design protocols that really act as a tremendous safeguard against collapses that you'll see in other countries. But that's not to say we don't have them. There are a couple in our country's history that really stand out. One is the 1981 Hyatt walkway collapse, which killed 113 people. We found out that it was primarily the cause of a value engineering system design change to possibly save money where the support beam system was engineered downward so that it would, the support system became cheaper. Another more recent collapse in the country's memory is the 2007 Minneapolis bridge collapse, where 13 people were killed, but the entire bridge, if you remember back 14 years ago, collapsed into the Mississippi River. I do remember that. And when something like that happens, or this building collapse down in Florida, how do you think about assigning responsibility and liability for that kind of event? Where do we look for that? Right. So my group, which is the construction law group over at Tartic, Prince, and Drogon, we've handled collectively dozens of collapse cases. Now, most of the time, they're not total collapses, but you have to analyze responsibility and liability. So let's just talk about the reasons that you could have a structural failure of a building or a bridge. One is an improper design. Two is improper construction. Something went wrong with how the building was put together. Three, we'll sometimes see defective materials being used. But again, in our country, that's very rare. Four is maybe something went wrong with the design load calculations. We'll often see that in collapse cases. And finally, really the fifth cause is maintenance issues where structures are not maintained properly. And I want to talk a little bit about bridges towards the end of our presentation today, because most of our largest bridges in our country were built during the last turn of the century. So our largest bridges in this country are very often over 100 years old. And it's something that the average person gives little thought to. But all the politicians in our country know this. It's just often not a kind of a sexy issue to be fixing or, in many cases, replacing entire bridges. So I do want to touch upon that because I think we can learn a lot about 
liability and responsibility issues just by looking at the history of our bridges in this country. So those are the five usual causes of a collapse. Very often, almost all the time, there's more than one cause. Now, who can we hold responsible? So one would be the owners and managers of the structure. So take the Surfside collapse. We're definitely going to be wanting to look at what the board of managers knew there when they learned it and so on. And that would include the operators of the building or structure as well. We'll always go back and look at the design systems for the structure of building. And we'll sometimes see design errors within those plans. So there we could sometimes take a look at those design professionals, architects, engineers, what have you, and see if there's any responsibility there. And if so, is there insurance and can we sue them? Finally, we'll look at the contractors and see if there's a liability there for improper construction. And then, like I said before, while it's very rare in our country, we could have defective materials as well, Rich. Right. So a couple of things I wanted to follow up on. You know, you talk about collapses being very rare in the country. And then you mentioned- Total collapses. Right. That's what I was trying to distinguish. The the kind of catastrophic collapse that that happened down in Florida, that's very rare. But partial collapses where something falls down, that happens from time to time, right? Yeah, that happens quite a bit. In New York City, Rich, where we practice, what we see very often are partial collapses of facades that are in many cases over 100 years old, particularly masonry buildings. Now, while these aren't what we would call a structural failure, Rich, we do have pieces of buildings falling off onto streets all the time. In fact, New York City, as well as most cities with you know large buildings, have laws. In New York, it's called Local Law 11, where every four to five years, the owners of the building have to retain architects and engineers to evaluate the facades of their structures. And there's almost always a requirement of repairs that are necessary. Right. And I was interested as you broke down into the five causes of collapse, I see sort of a different defendant on each cause, whether it's caused by the design or the construction or the materials or the maintenance. You're sort of pointing a finger at a different entity in each circumstance. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And very often, as you know, as a litigator, we'll have multiple defendants on the same collapse. Okay. And how do you think about, you mentioned insurance. How do you think about that? Whose insurance are you looking at? Okay. So I think the best way to describe that for our listeners, Rich, is to look at the claims that arise out of a collapse, partial or total. And it's really only three types of claims. One type of claim is property damage. And that would fall into two categories, property damage to the collapsed structure itself, so the building itself. And the other type of property damage is property damage to neighboring properties. Whenever there's a collapse, you're almost always going to have liability or damage to your neighbors. That could take the form of physical damage, or it could actually take the form of eviction notices from the municipality because they want to test. So they'll evict the neighbors for a certain time period, and very often it could be months or years that testing is undertaken to make sure that the neighboring properties are safe. So one is property damage, both to the actual property that collapsed and to neighboring property. Two is personal injury claims, Rich. So that would be 
to individuals who sustained some sort of personal injury as a result of the collapse. And then three is, and very often a lot of the focus goes to this third area, are insurance claims. Okay. And is that the insurance of the people who own the building or the people who did the maintenance or the people who had the materials? Whose insurance are you looking at? Okay. One is going to be a property insurance policy for the liability I mentioned on the property. Two would be what we call CGL or comprehensive commercial liability, which protects not only for property damage, but also personal injury. And then the third type of coverage we're going to see is coverage for malpractice, Rich. And this would be architectural or engineering malpractice. The problem with all of these claims is that we have to look at two types of statutes here. One is our statutes of limitation, which vary state to state. And some states have what we call a statute of repose, which totally blocks an action after a certain time period. So there's a lot to unpack there. But very often, the statute of limitations, the clock is going to start to run against most claims. It's problematic that so many of these collapses will happen long after a building is complete. And the reason why that's problematic is because most of the time, the statute of limitations, depending on the claim, will start to run from the date the building is completed, substantially complete, we call it. So here in New York, you're going to at most have a six-year statute of limitations from when the time the building is complete. Now, with personal injury claims, that's not always the case because that the statute of limitations on a personal injury case usually starts to tick from the time that the injury is sustained, right? But when you're looking at a collapse like Surfside or even the Hyatt collapse, you're going to go back in time for 40 years. Very often you'll have you know, the contractors will long be dissolved, right? So now you got to try to find these policies, which very often have major exclusions in them. And you're going back, you're going to have to look at design professionals that may not even be alive anymore 40 years later. So you do have these very particular issues with any claim involving a collapse and the statute of limitations. It sounds like you might do better if you're able to put liability on the people doing the maintenance because they they would have been acting, you know, very recently and you wouldn't necessarily have that kind of issue. That's correct. And that goes for not only the people doing the maintenance, but the people or the companies making the decisions, the actual operators of the structure. Right. And and it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out down in Florida because there are issues about who was aware of the condition of the building, how bad was it, and did they take appropriate action You know, in the last couple of years knowing what they knew? And that's, that's a little bit different than, you know, was the building built okay 40 years ago? Absolutely, that's correct. And you raise another point there in your comment. We're very often looking at latent defects versus patent defects. And here with Surfside, what's interesting is these are not latent defects. The managers of the building apparently knew about these issues for years. They were on notice, we would say, Rich, regarding the maintenance issues of that building. Right. All right. Let's talk a little bit. You mentioned bridges before, and I wanted to make sure we got to that. And you, you mentioned at least one catastrophic bridge collapse in the last 
20 years. Is that an area where you expect to see more problems? Well, it's well documented, Rich, throughout the country, every politician throughout all 50 states have long known about the decay of our bridges, which it's um, not a sexy problem to have. It's not something you could run on as a platform, but this is a major issue facing our country. As I said, our oldest bridges are very often our largest bridges, and they were built you know, 75, 100, 120 years ago. And what we've had over this time is a patchwork of repairs that just very often don't make sense structurally. These bridges, the ones built from the 19th to 20th century, they were not designed or built to last over 100 years. Like up here in New York, the Tappan Zee Bridge, I mean, this was really on red alert. The Tappan Zee Bridge, many politicians have said that should have been replaced long, long ago. And so many of our bridges, unfortunately, in this country are in use and they should be replaced now. They were never ever designed or built to last 100 plus years, like so many of our bridges in our country. From a liability standpoint, if something goes wrong, you would then be presented with the added difficulty of trying to sue a state or a city for for that kind of collapse, right? That's absolutely correct. As you know, Rich, many um, governments and municipalities have immunity from those sorts of claims. Yeah. I think about this a lot, you know, as a, as a proud resident of New York City, we have a lot of bridges, a lot of tunnels, we have water tunnels, we have subways, uh, all of which need repair and refurbishment. And you're exactly right. It's not the, the problem with getting politicians to focus on it is there's no immediate payoff. If you go to fix the subways, it's a 10 or 20 year process. So you can't run on it. <laughs> you can't fix a subway and run on it in two years because it won't be done. So it tends not to be the kind of issue that, that uh, a lot of people take on. That's absolutely correct. Um, and that goes, you know, for climate change as well. You know, there's been a lot of discussions in Surfside about the changing climate, Rich. We have more hurricanes in South Florida, more weather events that affect the structure of buildings. We know that. This has been discussed for 20 or 30 years now, rising sea levels and so on. But that also is not that sexy sort of topic that you could run on as a politician. But it's, it's, it's a real issue. It's actually changing engineering formulas, particularly ones that we use for load calculations or the lifespan of materials, you know, as, as well as other issues. And, you know, what are we doing with all these, you know, buildings and structures that are sitting on, you know, water? or seas that are rising. Yeah, we saw, we've seen a, a lot of different cases, you know, down in New Orleans, certainly in Florida and places, and then closer to where you and I live in New York City has been hit hard in recent years. The Rockaways, by way of example, a lot of damage from weather events. And uh, you can't sue the weather. <laughs> That, that's absolutely correct. I do want to kind of end off on something that I think our listeners um, should understand. Our engineering industry in this country is second to none. We have the best engineers in the world here. The training is rigorous. What you have to you know, go through to become a licensed structural engineer is incredible. And that's why we have so few total collapses compared to other countries, Rich. 
for the listeners, there's a, there's a really great article that's taught in every engineering school in our country. It's a 1995 article that came out in the New Yorker magazine called The 59-Story Crisis. And this article is about the design of the Citibank building, which was actually built in the 70s. Shortly after, it's a fascinating story, shortly after the building was built, I think it was around 77 or 78, an engineering student in New York City was trying to figure out the calculations for quartering winds, non-perpendicular winds. And he kept coming up on failures, that the design was apparently not adequate for 45-degree winds on the Citibank building. Now, everyone in New York City knows the Citibank building. It's an iconic building in our city. The building had been constructed for over a year when this design student ran his calculations. The building was occupied at the time. It was almost fully occupied. So the student calls up the engineer. The engineer was in a meeting and disregarded the phone call um, for, I believe it was about a day or two. The actual engineer did the calculations and the student was right. The design load was greater than the calculations that were required for quartering winds. It was a mistake that the original engineer made in only calculating perpendicular winds. So for about six months, in the middle of the night, the contractors rebraced the building from the inside. And New York City officials were aware of this, and they had evacuation plans. They were so worried that the Citibank building could come down that they had 20-block orders to basically vacate you know, hundreds of thousands of people should there be a weather event related to that Citibank building. So this is an example of the industry self-policing itself. And we see that time and time again in the United States. We also have a very rigorous independent testing requirement, just about in all 50 states. So the people delivering the concrete, they don't get to test their own concrete. You have to have a third-party independent testing firm testing the concrete as it's coming off the truck with every single batch that's delivered, Rich. So, you know, despite these unfortunately horrible and memorable events like the Hyatt Walkway collapse, the Minneapolis Bridge, and of course, Surfside, they're very rare given the system that we have in the United States for design and construction. Well, that that is good news and very interesting. So, you know, David, you've been here before. Usually at this point in the episode, I have uh, our guests talk a little bit about their practice. Uh, you've kind of been here and done that, but maybe you'll tell us uh, what's keeping the construction group busy these days. Yeah, so we're coming out of the pandemic finally. My group is myself and eight other attorneys. We represent owners, corporate institutional clients, not-for-profits, schools and hospitals with every facet of their construction requirements, including helping put together joint ventures for developers, to helping with financing, and ultimately, you know, helping what we call rescue missions where things go awry on a construction project or whether there's claims down the road, whether it's against or between owners, design professionals, and contractors. We've been very busy with our institutional and not-for-profit clients. You know, schools have been going up throughout New York City, charter schools, private schools. You know, they've, they all believe that New York City is coming back and that there'll be more and more students in the future. So we're very proud of that representation, which particularly when it comes to our not-for-profit clients. All right. 
That's great. The other thing is we end with a closing argument. Do you want to give a takeaway? You sort of just did, but. Yeah, I think I did. I think the takeaway is that while there'll always be building failures, total collapses are very rare in this country. People should feel safe. While we don't see it, the politicians, I believe, especially at the highest levels, are addressing our bridge problems, are addressing the infrastructure problems. And I think we do have to round the corner on the climate issues as it relates to design and construction, but we'll be there as well. We'll, The United States will take the lead. Excellent. All right. David, thank you for joining us today and uh, take care, everybody out there. Thank you, Rich. It was great talking to you today. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. Law Brief.